we're having a huge problem in Mexico. They literally threatened to put in jail John Pepper, the general manager of Mexico, and a couple of other people. And so the executive chairman came down, met with President Salinas de Gortari, and essentially told the president, we've been in Mexico for 40 some years. We will exit Mexico tomorrow if any of my executives are even threatened with this. We are a very principled company. There's no chance any executive or any other PNG employee would bribe anyone because they know that we would fire them. After that, every major decision I face as a CEO, even in my baseball work, I go back to that over and over again. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. And I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. Roman and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter and Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about. It's kind of like being a fly on the wall for my mentoring coffees. On today's show, we're talking to PNG alumni leader Fernando Aguirre, professional baseball owner and former CEO of Chiquita Brands International. Oh, wait a minute, Drew. Did you say professional baseball owner? I think that's a podcast first. Uh, yes, but you didn't actually let me finish the bio, Roman, because not only is he a professional baseball owner, but we had a really great conversation about different leadership lessons that he's learned. So the full-on bio for Fernando is that uh, Fernando Aguirre is an owner in professional baseball and was the former CEO of Chiquita Brands International for almost nine years. He's currently the sole owner and CEO of the Erie Seawolves, the AA affiliate for the Detroit Tigers. And he is also the second largest owner and vice chairman of the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, the advanced A affiliate of the Chicago Cubs. And he used to own a minority position in the Cincinnati Reds for 14 years before divesting in 2019. But on the kind of work side of things, many know Fernando best as the chairman and CEO of Chiquita Brands International, prior to which he worked for more than 23 years at, surprise, Procter & Gamble. For four of those years, Fernando was president of PNG Brazil. He currently serves on several boards, some of which include CVS Health, Synchrony Financial, and Duke's Fuqua School of Business. He's previously served on the boards of Aetna, Coca-Cola, Levi's, Univision, and USC's Marshall School of Business. He's been active in the Coach K Center on Leadership and Ethics, the International Board of the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. He received the NFL's Hispanic Heritage Leadership Award in 2011, and he was the first Hispanic CEO to participate in CBS's Undercover Boss. Okay. I just, so much resume envy. Like, I can't. Get, <laughs> but beyond that, like, the other thing about this, this interview or this conversation you had with him is he's just such a great storyteller. But again, and a baseball owner. Did you say undercover boss? He was on undercover boss. Yeah. And, and what's fascinating is he's able to bring all these experiences together and the lessons that he's learned through these, these stories. But yeah, undercover boss. Like I think also, you know, in addition to first baseball owner, I think first kind of reality TV star, which used to be quite the credential. Yeah. Uh, you know, less so now because we see what it's done to our national conversation. <laughs> is that a political statement? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think you might be deflecting a little bit, but here's here's a, a better question for you, Roman. Have you ever been on TV? You know, Drew, I actually don't want to be famous. I mean, podcast famous, maybe, but I, I prefer to be like the guy behind the guy. That's why our picture doesn't show up on the cover <laughs> of this podcast. <laughs> you know, I, I'd rather be rich and not famous. You know, mm -hmm. that way you can have my anonymity. What about you? I've been on TV before. If you didn't know, I'm I'm kind of famous. Again podcast famous maybe <laughs> maybe that's a that's a strong maybe but in my defense i have been on i was on vh1 for a actually that was really funny the kid from they did this segment on vh1 where like where are they now type things and they had this quiz where they would take an actor a child actor and then they would have three people deliver a famous line and then the audience would try to guess which one they were and i was a stand-in for a kid from i think a movie like kindergarten cop I don't remember which one, but so I was on VH1. Thank you very much. Been on multiple kind of news shows when talking about books and, and local markets. 
And in my first appearance on TV was I was a cheerleader for the PSATs. Uh, so the, the pre-SAT test that you would take, I was a cheerleader for it at our school and the news came out to, to do a story on us. There's so many things in your TV credits that uh, date both of us and, <laughs> and make our listeners feel really old. And yeah, and don't do anything to boost my claims of of being famous because of my my TV credits. Because ultimately, it is no it's no undercover boss, right? <laughs> That's a good segue back to Fernando. <laughs> uh, but look, seriously, as a parent and also as a child of immigrants, I loved that he talked about the advantages of being bilingual and bicultural. Because I think now more than ever, that's that's really important. Yeah, I mean, he talks about the advantages of it and also how he was proud that it was something that he could give to his kids because Fernando's had a, an incredible kind of career in a lot of different areas. And, and one of his kids was born in Canada. The other was born in Brazil. They're now living in the U.S. So kind of they still have that that bicultural, bilingual experience as as well. And and he's got stories about it. He's got stories about everything, which I think is what's so fantastic about this conversation. So I know people are going to enjoy it. So let's jump right in. Some people may know your professional story. You earned a business degree at the Southern Illinois University in Edwardsville. And after graduating, you started working at Procter & Gamble, where during your 23-year career, you had a variety of roles, including in laundry, global snacks, feminine care, some special projects, as well as served as president of P&G Brazil. In 2004, you left P&G and went to Jakita Brands International, where you were chairman and CEO for almost nine years. And then since leaving Chiquita, you've been on a number of boards as well as the owner of a professional baseball team, you know, first as a minority owner of Cincinnati Reds, and then now as the CEO and sole owner of the Erie Seawolves team, a double A affiliate for the Tigers, Detroit Tigers. And you're also part owner of the Myrtle Beach Pelican. So my first question for you is, you know, growing up in Mexico City as a kid, is this the career you imagined? Like what did what did 10-year-old Fernando want to be? No, it's not the career I imagined. You know, as, as a 10-year-old, I was uh, growing up in Mexico, going to school, listening to my father who would almost always tell us that what we needed to do was to learn how to speak English. And he spoke perfect English. He had been in a boarding school when he was a teenager. And so our very first time to the U.S., when I was actually 11 years old, it was the first time we came, and of course, my father was with us, and we came playing baseball. We were we started playing baseball since we were six years old, and we came to the U.S., played in a little tournament for little leagues, and I would listen to my dad order food and take us shopping, and, and very much at that time, I said, I like to speak English like my dad. And so I, I, I thought about it at that time, and it took me another four or five years before I got to a point where I said, okay, what's the plan to do that? And, and so those days I was playing baseball. That was very important to me. I, I got to love the game. My father was also very much into baseball. He actually had been the general manager of a professional team in Mexico City, the Mexico City Reds, the year before I was born and the year after I was born. And he kind of put that little bug in my brother and my and myself and in our systems. And so we started playing baseball, started loving the game. And all I wanted to do was play baseball. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And what position did you play? I was an infielder and I pitched. And of course, in those days in the Little League, you could do both. You could pitch one game and then the next, the next game you go and play something else. And in the Little League in Mexico, we would only play in the weekends. So Saturdays and Sundays, we'd have one game Saturday, one Sunday. And we might practice a day during the week. But I typically would pitch one of the two days, and then I would play infield the other day. Oh, that's fantastic. I was, I'm left-handed, so I played first base, and I would pitch. I wasn't a very good pitcher. In fact, in high school later when I would pitch, I pitched so slow that they would bring me in as a kind of a middle inning reliever because we'd have a people pitching normal speed and then it would take batters a couple of a little bit of time to adjust to how slow I was pitching. <laughs> 
So it's a very weird balance. But so you're you're doing baseball and stuff like that. And so was that was the aspiration to kind of one learn English and, and speak it as well as your dad and also become a professional baseball player? Or did you have something career wise that you thought that you might do later? I did not. I was in those days we're talking about the sixties, we were focused on making sure we got some decent grades in school. Our parents would really f- focus on education more than anything. And just playing baseball was critical. So no, I didn't really think about anything professionally. And and when I was 16, 15 and a bit, I actually decided that I was going to work a little bit and save some money. So I thought I was working. I went to my uncle, had a car dealership, a Datsun at the time, which is turned to be a Nissan later on. And my uncle owned a couple of dealerships and my grandfather, his father and my mother's father worked there. And so I, I asked my grandfather one day, would you let me come and work with you on Saturdays? Because they were open Saturday mornings. And he said, sure, come on and let's see what you can do. And so at first I wouldn't do much of anything. And then he started teaching me, my grandfather started teaching me how to sell cars. And and long story short, I ended up saving Somewhere near $750 after two years of work, my grandfather would give me a little bit of money based on his commissions. And with that money, I ended up paying for a year of an international foreign exchange student program. And I was young. My, I have an older brother, one year older, a year and three months older. In those days, there were no rules about age for school. So... My parents decided to put my brother and I in the same year since kindergarten. So I grew up with my brother, many people thinking we were twins, <laughs> and every year in school. Now, of course, the side story is that my brother was a much better student than I, and he was, uh, in those days, was straight tens. There weren't A's, B's, and C's. It was zero to 10, and he was a straight 10 student, and I was in the sevens and eights and maybe once in a while a nine. And I, I was worried more about playing baseball and playing with my friends and studying, whereas my my brother was exactly the opposite. He would we would get home and he get in the room and start studying and I wouldn't. And so that's the way we grew up. And so by the time I was sixteen, I was graduating from high school in Mexico. I was young and I decided I'm gonna go and do a year in the States as a foreign exchange student to learn how to speak English and to play baseball. My I had a cousin who came up as a 12-year-old. In those days, it was kind of typical for Mexican kids to come up to the U.S., live with a family, be a foreign exchange student, learn to speak, and then go back. And my cousin did that. And when he came back, when he was 13 years old, and he was playing baseball with us, I saw him speak English when next time we came to the U.S. And I said, my goodness, I got to I gotta be able to do that. So so I, I joined up with this foreign exchange student company. I paid my fee. I... One day we got a letter at home. I, I did not tell my parents because <laughs> I was afraid my mom would say no. And so I paid for it. And then one good day, I got a letter at home in August of 1975. And the letter said, you are going to a family, Mr. and Mrs. Orr in Morrow, Illinois. And have you ever heard? Had you ever heard of more? I don't think I've ever heard of no. Moral, Illinois, and I grew up in Ohio. No, no, I had never heard of Moral. In, in, in the in the process of application, they ask you. The company asks you to put three states where you'd like to be sent, and I put Michigan, Illinois, and I think Minnesota. And the only reason I put that is because I would I feared that if I went to California or Texas or Florida. I'd be speaking as much Spanish as I was in Mexico. So I said, no, I, and, I, and I wanted to see snow. I had never seen snow. So I said, I got, I'm going to go north. And so they came back with his family, and I looked that up in the map, and Moore, Illinois was a little town of 700 people. And I said, oh, boy, this is going to be kind of interesting. And so we got the letter, and then I, we got a I showed it to my parents and my parents were surprised. And of course, immediate reaction from my mom was, no, you're not, you can't go because we can't pay for it. And I said, well, I've already paid. And she looked at me and, and I said, well, I've already paid for that one year. The year that year includes an airplane ticket. And I got a little bit of money left. By then I had saved a little bit more money. And, and so she said, well, we can't give you any money. And I said, well, that's okay. Because a year this, the family houses you, they feed you, they take you to school. And essentially, there's no other expenses. 
other than the round plane ticket. And so, so I went. And this was September of 1975. In those days, you can just imagine, you, you probably weren't born, Drew. You're too young. But in those days, there was no TSA. Your parents would take you all the way to the airplane. And, and then whoever what you were getting to would be at the airplane waiting for you. So I got on the plane. We connected through Houston, Texas, a group of about 25, 30 kids coming to the U.S. I was actually one of the older ones. At 16, there were a lot of a lot of kids at 11, 12, 13. That was the age that was more typical to come up. And so we did layover in Houston. And then there's another little story that I'll come back to it later, but then connected to St. Louis, Missouri. And the family was waiting for me there at the plane with a picture of me. I didn't know what they looked like, but the company had sent a picture of me. So they spotted me, grabbed me, and they tell me, that, or they told me later, that they talked to me all the way from St. Louis, Missouri to Moore, Illinois, across the river, which was a 35, 40-minute ride. And I don't remember it. Of course, not only not remember, I didn't know what the hell they were saying. <laughs> I, I could hardly understand cheeseburger and Coke and, mm -hmm. and mom and dad. That, that was about it. So so we got to their house, tiny little house in, in this very rural place. The next big city was called Bethalto, Illinois. And Bethalto had 7,000 kids or people, rather. And Bethalto had high schools and the high school to which I went to. And then there was a couple of other bigger places, Alton, Illinois, and Belleville, Illinois, are a couple of other towns nearby that are more known because they're bigger. And Belleville is where Jimmy Connors was born. So there's a little bit of history for you. And so so we, I got there, tiny little house in rural. So at night, uh, here's a little kid came, coming from Mexico City, living in houses on the streets with traffic and so on. And there was no noise at night. I was scared to death. I was crying. I cried oh, for probably the first three weeks or so. I cried almost every night because I was missing my and, parents. And, and Yeah, and were you starting to think like maybe this was a mistake and I should go back? Did that ever enter it? Absolutely. Absolutely. I was convinced that I really should go back. And I started going to school and then the kids in school, first they made fun of me because I couldn't speak English and and so on. And then I said, well, I got to learn. And I started really studying and reading and practicing as much as I could. And then about a week three or week four, my grandfather passed away. And that was a very sad, very sad time in my life. I cried more and I called my parents. And in, 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 again, in those days, no, no phones system. So we would talk maybe once every two or three months, or that was the plan at least. And so I called them. Well, they actually called me first to give me the news. And my mom couldn't talk. It was it was her dad, and he was the closest grandparent that we had to us. He watched us play baseball since we were kids, so we were very very close to him. And so anyway, we I couldn't talk, she couldn't talk. So I said, "Look, I'm coming back." And my dad said, "No, you're not. You're staying there. That's what you wanted to do, and you stay there." So I did. I said, "Best thing that my dad could have done." And frankly, I, I guess I could have come back, but I was a young seventeen year old or almost seventeen, and. And I said, okay, I'll do what my dad says. So I stayed. And and the rest, as they say, is history. Because I would my life would not have been the same had I come back at that at that point. Yeah. And and one of the things that so I watched this great interview that you had with your your son just when like doing some of the research for this. And in that interview with him, you mentioned kind of that that being bilingual and in particular being bicultural can be a, an advantage in both business and society. And so I'm curious from that experience, right? You're coming from a different culture into the U.S. and you learn a lot. And then through your experiences kind of throughout your career, what advantages have you seen from being bicultural? Well, clearly there are several and probably the top two or three. Number one, you understand there are major differences in in people and in cultures. And while we're... <laughs> We're living it today, aren't we? The last two or three weeks here in the U.S., the situation has been has been horrible, frankly. And and I think part of the problem is that the cultures, the different cultures, don't really understand each other culturally. Forget about racially and forget about any other aspect of it. But the culture is so important and so different to understand. So so I believe, and and our kids, we we have two sons, and one was born in Brazil and the other one in Toronto. And and both were really grew up with us as a Mexican family, 
But by then we lived in the U.S. We moved to the U.S. in 99 and they were young. So they grew up as really American kids. But we have instilled in them many of the cultural values of the Hispanic and the Mexican families, and which I believe are incredibly important for them to hold on to. So I, I think there, there are major differences, and some are good, some others maybe not so good. But I think it's important to understand what those differences are, which, by the way, is one of the big benefits that PNG offers to or offer to many of us was to move us around in the world. And one of the biggest advantages was that you could learn the culture within PNG, but you could learn the culture of different countries while you were working in a safe environment. Because as you know, PNG internally, we speak the same language, we write the same way, we talk to each other in manners that the company trains us to do, which is fantastic because you can move to China or Japan or Brazil and really, your working life is essentially the same. The offices even look kind of the same, and the way we speak again and talk is the same. So everything else you need to worry about is really more on the personal side, on the cultural side, and on the family side. Yeah, which and and I think that's great because as as I've done international work with both PNG and and since with my own company, that's one of the things that you realize is that there is a culture to an organization, a way of speaking. And like you said, when you're traveling internationally, that can be an advantage because that is something consistent while you're experiencing these other changes and having that different cultural experiences. You don't necessarily always know what they are, but the fact that you know that they're different cultures, it's like, oh, this person isn't wrong because they're doing something different. It's just culturally a little bit different. And it seems to be something that has been, at least with the interview with your son kind of come across pretty well. And in that same interview, he asked an interesting question as you bring them up. I'm curious about what kind of role family has played because you asked an interesting question to your son, even though he was interviewing you, you asked it back on him of what would he hope your legacy is for you as his parent. And he said that that you are a happy parent and one who's who's proud of what he's able to accomplish based on the resources that he's been given. And so I'm curious, how have you balanced parenting and family while also running a company like Chiquita or with the baseball team or through some of the, the roles that you were doing at P&G? What, how, how has work-life balance or family balance come into play? Yeah, that, that's a good question because I think we all struggle with that work-life balance. My generation struggled with it more, I think, than your generation and even the generation now of my kids who are now in late 20s and, and early 30s. Things have changed for for all of us, but in in my days, and from a Mexican heritage and cultural standpoint, family is very important to us. And as a result of that, we did two or three things to help. Number one, I took all of my vacation days every year, and as you know, PNG doesn't give a lot of them the first five years of your career, but I took advantage of it every single one, and all the way up to the time I left, I had four weeks of vacation. And I would take every single day, mostly to spend with my family and with my kids. Secondly, my wife did this wonderful thing, which was that, and I traveled quite a bit towards the end of my career at PNG, and of course with Chiquita, I tra- I was traveling all the time. But we had this little thing about eating dinner at home whenever I was at home, and I would arrive typically late, seven thirty, eight o'clock. Although for Mexicans, seven thirty and eight o'clock for dinner is not a bad time; it's actually normal. And and my wife, if the kids were hungry, which many times they were, because they played sports, they would get home and eat dinner early at six or six thirty. But my wife said, when your dad arrives, you guys come down and spend time with us at the table. So I might eat by myself. My wife, and my kids may have eaten already, but all four of us were at the table while I was having dinner. And that was time for us to talk and what they did and how they did it and so forth and so on. And then the third thing that that we did is I spent as much of my time as I could following their their lives. And luckily, they both did sports. And so we had games to go to, and and my wife hated to drive them all the time. She's not a sports-minded person. And, of course, I was, or I am, because I grew up playing baseball. And I love, as they were playing, sports and they played football and lacrosse mostly. I just love to go and watch them play. So when I became a CEO, I will confess that I would take some times in the afternoons and whenever there was a game for one of my kids, 
I would take off from the office and go and watch him. I might come back to the office at night or at six or seven and or work from home. In those days, working from home wasn't as popular, frankly, as, <laughs> as it's become now. But I would go watch their game and then come back to the office. And for me, watching their game and being there was absolutely important and critical. So my assistant always knew, and I, I would give her my kids' calendars, and she knew she had to work around, give me about half an hour before and about half an hour after their games to be able to escape, go there, watch them, and then come back. And so, you know, little tricks here and there that helped me over time. But to the question of, you know, can you really achieve a work-family-life balance? My answer has always been, you really have to work very, very hard to succeed. Competition is fiercer, very fierce and harder than ever. Today, I, all of you guys and my sons are coming out of schools with master's degrees and PhDs and so on, which in my days it weren't as, as usual or as normal. So competition is so much stronger and the world moves so much faster that the idea of a nine to five scenario to me is really not realistic. So if you want to truly succeed, regardless whether you're an entrepreneur or a corporate executive, you got to put in the hours and it just means longer than nine to five. Yeah. Well, and I think to your point also being deliberate about your schedule, like you said of like, okay, you can put it on the schedule and if it's you know, in the middle of the day, it's 30 minutes off before 30 minutes after, but then you might come back, but that you're more you know, in control of that more kind of set of like, okay, getting it on the calendar for, for family time and having that tradition of, you know, having the kids come and eat, you know, rather than you just eating, you know, your, the meal by yourself, cause the family's already eaten and watching TV or something else like that being like, no, this is, you know, it's more than a dinner. It's family time. It's time that we get to have a conversation or catch up on people's day. So I think I like the deliberate focus. Like you said, it may not always be exactly nine to five in the normal times, but the focus is is definitely there, and 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 certainly in in your success with PNG the career, like right. So you spent twenty three years at PNG, rising through the ranks, and clearly a lot of successes, both probably you know from a, a family perspective and a career perspective. But you know, one of the things that we're always curious is about is is the times that haven't worked out. Because when we see people's resumes, we see the kind of like highlights and rising through the ranks and also CEO, clearly a lot of successes. So I'm curious, were there any any kind of things at PNG times when things didn't quite work out the way you, you thought that they might? And, and how did that either help you grow or how did you adapt to that situation? Yeah, that, that's also a good question because I always like to say we learn more from our failures. It's a hard word to use many times that people don't like it, but we fail. We, we clearly fail a lot of times. And and so why well, I had several in at PNG and, and at Chiquita, no question about it. When I arrived in the food service division in, in PNG in Cincinnati, my biggest brand was Pringles. And so this is one of the first GBU jobs and Pringles was one of my biggest businesses. Well, first thing I did was start starting my competition and we started a big fight in Mexico. I was the head of the Mexican business at the time and Mexico has a big, big snacks business for Frito-Lay for Pepsi, which they feared Pringles like there was no tomorrow. And their CEO at the time, Steve Reinemann, appeared in one of the magazines, Fortune or Forbes, and he essentially said that he wiped his feet with the Pringles character that he had he had, had printed on the floor mat, and that he told his people that their mandate was to kill Pringles no matter what. I mean, he, they printed this in, in a Fortune, and I read it, and I said, my goodness, we, this is going to be a big fight. And then they aired a commercial in Mexico that had Pringles two test tubes with ingredients listed on them, chemicals. And they said, these are all the ingredients in Pringles. And they aired it in Mexico. And so John Pepper, we went to a meeting and John Pepper and I went to Waco, Texas and met with Steve Reinemann. And we shot a commercial in the, pre, in the, in the pre-production facilities and our commercial production facilities at PNG, which was a wonderful commercial where we not only showed test tubes of what went into Fridley, the bags, but we also showed a bag exploding. I mean, literally exploding. <laughs> it was magnificent. Pepper loved it. And he said, let's go, let's go and meet with Randman. So we went, met with Randman in his office. John put the tape in the machine and he played the commercial and Randman looked at it. And, and John says, and Steve, I just want to let you know, this is not for Mexico. 
this is, we're going to air this here in the U.S. And of course, the U.S. was a lot bigger and Mexico is a big business for them, very little for us. And he said, we're going to air it here in the U.S. And Reinemann went white. I mean, he went, he went blank. It was the most amazing, <laughs> incredible thing that I saw John Pepper do in, in his life. So I, it was fascinating. And, he's, and he said, so John, you're telling me you're going to destroy my business in the U.S. if I don't stop the, the nonsense in Mexico. And he said, that's exactly, you got it. You're a smart guy. You got it. So we walked away. And the next day I got a phone call from our Mexican guy saying the Frito-Lay commercials are off the air. They're not no longer airing it. And it was a, a great, great, fascinating story to really learn that. And, and, and John did tell me on the plane back to Cincinnati, he said, Fernando, it is important that you know your competition and it is important that you have direct access to them because he did. He knew Reinemann and he called him. He said, Steve, we need to talk. And it's you and I and the head of my snacks business. And, and we did. Otherwise, we would have kept fighting in Mexico and in the U.S. And it would have cost both companies tons and tons of money. But he said, it's important when you're head of the business. And I, I use that lesson many times after that on Chiquita and other places. You, you have to have direct line to your competition. Well, and, and a great story to then have that relationship to know the importance of it. And then also to go and kind of demonstrate, hey, we could play this this game as well. But and so you and Pepper could have decided, let's just air it in the US without having a conversation. And it's like, no, let's right. be cordial about it. Let's warn it. And just kind of say, this is what could happen. And then that way, you don't have to go after these kind of attack ads from each other. Well, which was really John's style. And by the way, I heard your podcast with him, which was fantastic. John is is that way. He is a mediator. He's a, I mean, he can be aggressive as, as the best of them. But compared to ad arts or compared to Dirk, Clearly, John was m- much more of a thinker of well, how can we do this in a way that we're not going to go and bomb the other guys. Whereas Dirk, Dirk's, at that time, Dirk was the COO, and we met with him and with John. And and Dirk's position was, no, no, he's not going to listen to you. He's an Army ex-Army Marine guy. He's a big, tough guy. He's going to bomb us, and we ought to do something stronger. And John said, no, 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 we, we, Fernando and I are going to go to Waco. Let's see what we can do. And we did, and we pulled it. We pulled it through. But it, it, it was John's doing, frankly. And now a word from our sponsor. Today we're talking to Stefan K. James, senior business advisor and head of marketing of Switched On Training, a sports training app for competitive athletes to take athletes' physical and cognitive performance from good to great. Stefan, this sounds like some pretty nerdy neurosciencey type stuff. What's the value of even focusing on not just you know, athletes' physical performance, but also their cognitive performance as well. What's, what sports neuroscience will tell you is that training and sports training not only tones muscle and builds muscle, but it also reshapes and reforms your brain as well as your peripheral nervous system. And this phenomenon is called neuro, neuroplasticity. Unfortunately, most training that most, most athletes are going through now is not really designed uh, with neuroplasticity in mind, so they're not getting the optimal workout for both their brain and their body that they could be getting. And so what we're doing uh, at Switched On to combat this uh, this gap we believe is, is going on in the sports training market is creating a, an app that you can use on your mobile device that enables you to, uh, to get randomized cues to work your brain um, and you have to make decisions based on those cues to work your brain and your body while you're doing your your particular sports drill. And what that does is that better mimics what goes on on the field or the court with all the randomized uh, different variables that are thrown at you while you are playing your sport. Yeah, that sounds fantastic, right? Because it's not just about you know the physical thing, but also what you're thinking, and it helps you to train that thinking piece. And and you know, I've seen plenty of sports documentaries. You know, I'm a huge NBA fan, and and so a lot of times it seems like they have these big, pretty complex, and what are likely very expensive solutions for doing that. And so, how has switched on different? Yeah, so you know, when we looked at the, the competitive market, you know, the, there are a lot of great, great applications out there to that train your your brain and your body, but usually those things cost upwards of you know ten, fifteen thousand dollars, and you know you need a, a trainer as well as a lot of applications or equipment associated with it. And what we are able to do is offer very similar training, if not better training, that you can just download on your phone or mobile device, and you can just set up you know in the in your backyard or in your house 
Uh, we have a lot of athletes that are doing this type of training in their house now while we're under quarantine that you would not be able to do unless you had a massive, uh, a massive amount of equipment or a facility to do this work in. Yeah, so we're able to democratize this type of training for that high school athlete that is trying to get on the varsity team or that, uh, that college athlete that wants to uh, you know, rise up in the depth charts or that, that competitive athlete that really wants to get a, a shot at uh, a professional uh, career in this space. We're able to do this for, a, a, uh, for anybody who's looking to get their, their performance from, from good to great. And I mean, it sounds, sounds fantastic. If people want to learn a little bit more, where do they go to find that out? We're on our, of course, all of our social media channels are, is uh, Switched On Training. And that's, uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, and of course, and TikTok, where our, we, we find a lot of our consumers are. And then we are also on our website, uh, switchedontrainingapp.com. Those are two places you can, you can reach us just to learn more about what we're doing and to join the movement. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Stefan. And now back to our show. So you have these leadership lessons that you learn from great career at PNG, and then you become CEO of Chiquita. You're there for almost nine years. And so I'm curious, when you were kind of first starting in that role, what was your approach to leadership? What was your your kind of goal in trying to getting the most out of the people as as the CEO of a company? Yeah. So the biggest lesson I learned at PNG was from John Smale. And and again, many people didn't have an opportunity to meet John. I did have a chance my first five years in the company. He was the CEO of the company. And I was up in Cincinnati for my first time, uh, two and a half years in the company or so for some sort of brand management training. And for whatever reasons, I got an opportunity to sit down at John Smale's table for dinner. Again, this was one of those brand manager events that uh, they brought in from the world and and they would have John meet, talk to us, and so on. Well, I was sit, I sat at his table for whatever reason. And so I, I said, Mr. Smale, I'd like to ask you a question. He says, sure, Fernando. And I, I was so impressed by that, but I had my name tag on, on which I didn't realize that he, he read. So I, but I was nevertheless impressed that he knew my first name. And so I said, I said what would it take to become a success? What's, what's your key to success in, the, in this company? And he said, Fernando, it's actually quite simple. The key to success is to make decisions on the basis of values and principles. And I stopped and I thought about it for a little bit. I had a little piece of paper, which I learned also at PNG that carrying paper and pencil with you was very important when you were talking to the executives. And I did that for most of my career. And so I, I kind of wrote it and then and I said, Could you do you explain more? And he says, Well, it's really simple because if you know the values and principles of the company which, by the way, you all, and we were maybe eight of us, uh, brand managers at the table, and so he looked at all of them, and he said, so, so my suggestion to all of you is you guys go back and learn PNG's values and principles. Once you learn them and understand them, think of any and all decisions that you will be faced with for the rest of your careers, and as long as you make them using those values and principles, I guarantee that you'll be successful. So I put it there. I wrote it down. And again, I was two and a half years in the company, so very young. And I started away and that was that. And I left and about five, four or five years, uh, yeah, about three years later, John had retired and we were having a huge problem, actually more like six, seven years later, we were having a huge problem in Mexico with in the introduction of paper products. And bottom line, the head of Kimberly Clark filed a legal suit and they threatened to make it criminal. And they literally threatened to put in jail John Pepper, the general manager of, Mexi of the Mexican business, a guy by the name of Claude Salomon, and a couple of other people. And so John was retired. He was the executive chairman of the company, of the, the board. And John and Claude Salomon decided to bring him down to Mexico. So he came down to Mexico, met with President Salinas de Gortari at the time, and essentially told the president, Mr. President, we've been in Mexico for 40-some years. We will exit Mexico tomorrow if any of my executives are even threatened with this. And he told them what was going on. And Salinas Agortari said to him, Mr. Smell, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And so he left and uh, came back. I was By then, I was an associate advertising manager, and they invited us to go to a very nice dinner with Mr. and Mrs. Smell. And, and we sat down there, and then he explained a little more of what happened in that conversation. 
And he told the president, look, we are a very principled company. There is no chance, and, and the, the head of Kimberly-Clark was saying that PNG was trying to bribe the government. And Mr. Smale said, I can guarantee you, Mr. President, there's no chance any PNG executive or any other PNG employee would bribe anyone because they know that the moment they did that, we would fire them. And he said, we're a very principled company. And that brought me back to that conversation several years before where I said, hmm, okay, I get it now. I understand the principles. And by then, I obviously knew the principles of the company. And I said, okay, I get it. And after that, Drew, I, every major decision I faced as a CEO, high up in the company at P&G, I, I thought of that. And I've to this day, even in my baseball work, I can tell you that I go back to that over and over and over again, saying, boy, that was so critical and so important. And to me, that is a, a, the most important lesson of PNG and a critical aspect of leadership to come back to your original question on the leadership style, that I guess, that I followed. Well, and a great story to demonstrate that that's something that in our conversation with Ed Arts for the, the podcast, he said a, a similar thing of like having strong values and principles is a competitive advantage because to the fact that PNG kind of lived and breathed that enough that it could be like, hey, this is how I know it wouldn't have happened to help kind of resolve this issue, I think speaks to the importance of that when the, the company kind of and the employees buy into that. And and so, yeah, you bring up as an owner. So in addition to serving on multiple boards, including those for like CVS Health and Synchrony, you're also the sole owner of the Erie SeaWorld. So my first question is, was it, was it the childhood dream that you're like, I'm going to get back into professional baseball <laughs> and maybe at that age, a little too old to, to play in the, the infielder <laughs> pitching? Is that why you go the ownership route? What was it? Why get back into uh, professional baseball in this way? Yeah. So by then I invested in the Reds when Bob Gasolini bought him from Carl Linder. And that would happen around 2006 or so. And a friend of mine, Tom Williams, who was also involved with the ownership, is a baseball guy. And, and I was with him at, at an organization called YPO. And we were talking and he told me we're going to buy the Reds. And and I said, well, is there any chance for some of us to get involved? He says, yeah, there will be investment opportunities. So I got in. I bought a tiny little piece of the Reds. And, and I met Castellini and other people through that. Well, when I decided to stop the rat race, as I call it, from the corporate life. I had enough and I said, okay, I'm going to stop. I'm going to, I luckily I'd earned enough and I had a good corporate life and I had achieved many things that I wanted to achieve. And, but I was tired. I was tired of, of being a CEO for that long and having to deal with all the bull crap that you have to deal with sometimes. So I, I decided to stop and dedicate myself to something else. And it, I took about a year to decide what, and I decided I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And I had, by the way, thoughts of being an entrepreneur throughout my career at Proctor. And every time I was kind of getting to a plan, Proctor would move me from one <laughs> position to another and promote me and give me more responsibilities. And they managed my career so well and so aggressively that I, it never gave me an opportunity. And then, of course, I became a CEO and, and then I wanted to do that. So finally, I said, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. So it took me about a year. I, inve I invested in a couple of things here and there. Finally, I called Bob Gasolini one day and I said, Bob, I'm becoming an entrepreneur and I wanted to see whether you think there's opportunities in baseball. He said, he said, Fernando, minor, the minor league baseball community has grown tremendously. The values have grown tremendously. You ought to look into it. And he said, let me put you together with our people here and they'll put point you in the right direction. So I spent time with Bob's people in the Reds and then introduced me to a couple of minor league owners. One of them, Chuck Greenberg, who owned the Myrtle Beach Pelicans and two other teams, agreed with me over after two or three months of negotiating to sell me a piece of his team in Myrtle Beach. So I did that. And then my plan was to buy another 25, 30% stake in another team to learn the business and then eventually buy a team. Well, Chuck calls me one day and he says, I know your plan, but there's an opportunity to expedite that by a lot because there's a private equity firm that's selling five teams, and one of them may, may be interesting to you, a AA affiliate. So he introduced me to the people that owned Erie, AA for the Tigers, and I found it to be fascinating. I Actually, they say that you make more money when you buy than when you sell, and that is true. So hopefully that will happen eventually here, but I bought at a reasonable price, 
And, and I decided to buy a team by myself. And so I did. And it's been fun. It's been interesting. I deal with most of our staff, our 20-year-olds, typically most of them right out of school, first jobs, which to me has been fascinating. One of the reasons I did it is because I wanted to stay in touch with the new generation, and I wanted to make sure I could learn from them more and more, not just from my kids, but also from from other from other kids. And so, so yeah, our staff is young and my, I have a general manager and president of, of that runs all the all the things. He's been in baseball for about twenty years. He's one of the oldest at forty or forty one, <laughs> but it's been fun and it's been really entrepreneurial. I've I have felt the entrepreneurial spirit very vividly. We we are undergoing a major negotiation between minor league baseball, and major league baseball as we speak, and I've spent so much time with with that for the last six months. Because we really, right now, we're fighting for our life at Erie because it was announced that we we would be one of 42 teams that would be contracted from the minor leagues. And, and we've been negotiating and doing all kinds of different things. And and I, I'm very optimistic about the, the end on, on that one. But I've been spending an awful lot of time at a time when I thought I'd be an entrepreneur, but I also wanted to enjoy retirement a little more. <laughs> Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, it, it's fascinating. It's kind of interesting. The, the kind of comes full circle back in a, a way of that you're back into still as a leader, but also with a, a passion from your youth uh, around baseball and just seeing some of what has been going on in social media and also the playing some games as the Erie Pinatas, I think is a cool, as you talked about that bicultural thing, you're kind of experiencing it with the team itself. So I think a, a fascinating adventure to be partaking on. And, and so as we start to wrap up, we have a couple of quick kind of rapid fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better. And so I'm curious on the topic of baseball, do you have a favorite baseball player? Oh, well, yeah, I, Pete Rose. I was a big fan of Pete Rose for his baseball skills, the way he played, his attitude. Obviously, he made a huge mistake. And unfortunately, it's probably going to cost him to not be in the Hall of Fame ever, which is unfortunate because I think he's he is by far the best ball player to have played the game, and not just because he was uh, skilled, although he was, he's got many records, but the way he played the game was fascinating. Mm-hmm. So he's he clearly yeah. has been my hero for, for many, many years. Yeah, as a, as a Cincinnati native growing up on the Reds, uh, certainly Pete Rose and, and King Griffey Jr., Mm-hmm. favorite player of his his swing so a wonderful answer and and how do you currently so you're you're busy a lot but if you do have a moment to kind of relax or take a break what's your form of doing that is it tvs movies books podcasts something else yeah i, I read a lot i i tend to read a lot i have been reading for a long long time my father was an avid reader he you never saw my father without a book in his hands uh, and so i learned that from him and I read quite a bit, but I've been, I've been doing, I didn't do a lot of TV in the last, call it 20 years, but with Netflix and, and, <laughs> uh, and all this wonderful technology, I've been hooked on a couple of shows. And right now, as we speak, I'm so hooked on Homeland, which I didn't know existed for eight seasons until about a month and a half ago or two months ago. And I've been hooked. So I've been watching that. I'm already now in season eight, so I'm approaching the end of it. I love that. There's been two or three other shows that my wife and I have watched. There's one called The Young Pope with uh, Jude Law, which which is really a fascinating, fascinating story of a young, first uh, young American pope. So that was, and it's it's obviously all fiction, but it's quite interesting. And so I've been watching a little bit more TV, but I do have a few favorite movies here and there. The Godfather being at the top of my list. I love The Godfather, the three movies they made, and and so that that I like. And and I like I tend to like more. I like to go to the movies for fun. My my wife mm-hmm. watches a lot of horror movies, vampire <laughs> crap, and I I can't stand that, and she knows it. So. She watches her own stuff. I watch mine. But when we go together to the movies, she knows that we go there for fun. And we're not, I'm not going to go in to suffer some horrific story. So I, I will avoid that. Yeah, I like that framing because I'm not a, a fan of scary movies either. And it's like, exactly because it's not fun. You're tense the whole time. So <laughs> I like that that framing, going to the movies for fun. And so kind of as we wrap up, and you, you've mentioned this a little bit as partly as the owner 
baseball team, you get to stay connected with that next generation of leaders. So I'm curious, what's one final piece of advice or challenge that you would leave for that next generation? Yeah, I, it's always hard. And anytime I go out to speak at universities or to some of the some of the younger generations, I talk about having a plan and I talk about making sure they set objectives. Now, PNG is they teach us how to set objectives and how to design plans. But I always, I always tell young people, look, set your objectives, design your plan, execute, and then be prepared to change. And, and more than ever, I think in the last eight months or nine months, we've all learned that if we're not adaptable to change, we're probably not going to succeed. And and I think the world is moving so much faster today. There's so much more technology that I keep telling people, set your objectives and set your plan, but be very ready to change your execution because it will have to change. In the old days at PNG, they would teach us that strategy was forever. And it was in those days, 40 years ago. I think strategies now may last a year, a year and a half. And you have to review them and adapt them and change them as, as needed. And again, and certainly many of the things that are happening around us are really teaching us that we have to be adaptable. So if there's any one thing young people should be thinking about today is be adaptable, be able to change and adapt and change courses in any plan. Any plan is, a, I'm sure many people have an opportunity to design a great plan, but any great plan has diversions. And of course, the, between the pandemic and all of these protests that are going on around us, I think all of us have had to adapt and change. Absolutely. I think a, a fantastic answer for, for people. Fernanda, thanks so much for joining us today, for sharing your stories and wisdom. It was a fantastic conversation. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate it. And that's our show. Like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's episode. It's hard to find that balance when your office is a few feet from your kitchen and you're not really separating your work life and your family life. Balance is super different for every person. For some, it means not working on the weekend. For some, it means knocking out work late at night so they can focus on the weekend. For others, it means taking a regular vacation. For some, it may mean never taking a vacation. Just understanding where people are at so you can respect what balance means to people. Right now, it's uniquely challenging. That's it for this week. I've been Andrew Tarvin. And I'm still Roman Segel. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.